None of that is part of my preaching time, by the way, okay? Uh, and, and I was thinking about New Year's resolutions. One of my New Year's resolutions is to try and preach shorter, so none of that time. Yeah, <laughs> glory to God. Now we'll see if that really works. Who knows? You know, most New Year's resolutions fail by the 3rd of January. So maybe you've got New Year's resolutions, you know, same old, same old, want to lose weight, do more exercise, be more faithful in your devotions, etc., those kind of things. But this morning, we're going to turn to God's Word to lift our eyes from the resolutions that we can make that can be so tiny and short-sighted and man-centered, you know, the ambitions that we have to slim down or to run a marathon or whatever it might be. And we're going to see from God's Word the tremendous vision of how we can live our lives in a way that is pleasing to God in 2019. Now, it's been a long time since we were in the book of First Peter. It was the beginning of November, and there's a few guests here this morning, so you probably, you, you've not heard a message from First Peter. So before I read, let me just do a, the briefest recap. Previously, in First Peter, he is writing to elect exiles. You see that in verse 1 of chapter 1. This was a largely non-Jewish church that was based on the fringes of the Roman Empire in what is part of modern-day Turkey. And they were a congregation that was viewed with great suspicion and great hostility by the world around them. That was leading to persecution because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, okay, is the beginning of the heart of the book. Okay? So that's going to be a couple of weeks' time. But it's the, that's the heart of the book as Peter begins to address these elect exiles about what it means to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't. But before he does that, he's trying to ground them in the wonderful truths of all that God has done and won for them in Jesus. So the first chapter up to the end of verse 3 of chapter 2 is Peter celebrating the reality of all that it means to be born again to a living hope in Jesus Christ. Then in the passage that we're going to read this morning in verses 4 to 10 of chapter 2, he now begins to shift his focus a little bit okay, from the blessings of what it means to be born again to the blessings of what it means to be born into something together. So, he's talked about the blessings of what it means to be born again. Now he's going to talk about the blessings of what it means to be born into something together. And it's supremely relevant to us 21st century Bristolian Christians because the cultural tide of this kind of anti-Christian movement continues to rise against us, much like it was in Peter's day. Once upon a time, not so long ago, Christians, like you and me, were considered simple, naive, uh, a little bit, uh, you know, oh, there, there. We were worthy of condescension in the world's eyes. We were to be pitied. We were viewed as Ned Flanderses, all right? You know who Ned Flanders is from The Simpsons? No? Okay, you're all Christians, so you don't watch The Simpsons, just me. Okay, well, Ned Flanders was this simple, naive, quaint kind of guy who everybody pitied. That was how we used to be viewed, but today, in today's new, bold world, Christians are intolerant haters. We're bigots. We are to be despised because of our refusal to get on board with the cultural, liberal, 
agenda. And so we're no longer Ned Flanders anymore. We are dangerous. And so in light of this massive shift in the way that the, the culture, or at least the liberal culture, views Christians, we need to be equipped and prepared for the onslaught that's coming towards Christians because of the biblical views that we hold and the pressure and the persecution that might come to us. And if we're not prepared, we will be uh, vulnerable to discouragement, we'll be vulnerable to uh, despair, to fear, to the, potentially to compromise and to capitulation, to just get on board. It's easier to just, if you can't beat them, then join them. That's the temptation that awaits us. And so Peter is writing to a, Christ, a bunch of Christians just like us, but 2,000 years ago, and he wants them to know something. In fact, not just Peter wants them to know something, God wants them to know something so that they will stand firm and live faithfully in a world that doesn't follow Jesus. So, they wanna, he wants them to stand firm and to live faithfully in a world that doesn't follow Jesus. And in order to do that, they need to know two things. They need to know who they are, or who we are, as we apply it to ourselves, and why we are. So we need to know who we are, and by that I mean not just who you or I am as individual Christians before Jesus, but who we are collectively as God's people. What is our true identity? What is this thing that we're a part of, that we're doing right now? See, it's not enough, Peter's going to tell us, to just to be a strong, independent, isolated believer. We actually need to be really actually joined up and built in and involved with what God is doing in the world. And we need to grasp the importance and the vital nature and the privilege of our corporate identity as the church. We need to do that so that we can stand firm. And in order to live faithfully, we need to know why we are. Why do we do the things that we do? What is the purpose of us coming together? Why do we Sunday after Sunday do the things that we do? Why do we in the week turn our hand and our attention to the things that we do. So if we want to stand firm and live faithfully for God in a world that doesn't follow him, we need to know who we are and why we are. And that's what Peter's going to tell us this morning from verses 4 to 10 of the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. So will you read along with me and let's hear what God has got to say to us. As you come to him... A living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people from his own, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. Lord, we pray for your help now to hear your voice and to hear what you have to say to us, to encourage us so that we might stand firmly and live faithfully for you in a world that doesn't. Help us put away the distractions, help us overcome the tiredness, and help us to focus on what you have to say to us so that it might do us good as your people. For the sake of your glory, we pray. Amen. So two things that he wants us to know, who we are and why we are. And they're going to govern us as we tackle verses 4 to 8 this morning. It's a big passage packed full of truth, so we're going to split it over two weeks. So we're going to do verses 9 and 10 next week, but 4 to 8 this morning. And so we're going to consider, first of all, who we are. If we're going to stand firm and follow Jesus in a world that doesn't, we need to know who we are. And the first thing that Peter wants us to recognize is who we're joined to. Who we are joined to. He tells us that we are joined to Jesus in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We, as God's people, are joined to Jesus. Now that might seem obvious, but it's something that we can so easily overlook. We're joined. We're united. We're put together, fitted together with Jesus. Now Jesus is the one who was despised and rejected by men, particularly the Jewish religious leaders that led him to being crucified on a Roman cross in the company of criminals. And the world's assessment of Jesus is that he was a dangerous troublemaker. He was a deviant from the culturally accepted norms of the day. He was bad news, and so they tried to put him to death. He was turning the world upside down, and they didn't like it, so they killed him. But God's assessment of Jesus was quite different, and Peter tells us here, here's God's assessment. He was chosen and precious, and he's a living stone. Now, he's living because he, he was crucified, but he was resurrected. And he's risen from the dead and he's alive today, having triumphed over sin and death and Satan. He's living, but he's also a stone. Now, you might think, well, why does, God, why does Peter call him a stone? Well, in referencing him as a stone, he's putting together three uh, Old Testament passages that were, that were used and spoken of by uh, the psalmist and Isaiah to speak about God's coming Messiah. So the first quote in verse 6 is from Isaiah 28, verse 16. Verse 7 is from Psalm 118, verse 22. And then the third quote from verse, nine, uh, verse 8 sorry, is Isaiah 8, verse 14. And all of these three, Peter draws them together as imagery of the Messiah. And so what he's doing is he's saying, you are joined to Christ, to Jesus who is living, he's alive and he's well and he's powerful and he's ruling and he's reigning and he's God's Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's precious and he's come into the world to save people from their sins. And the implication of the quotes that Peter puts together in verses 6 and 7 and 8 is this. The Messiah has come and now everybody has to decide whether they believe in him or not. And if you believe in him and you accept who he is and what he's done, Peter tells us that we will never be put to shame. The end of verse 6. But if we refuse him and we reject him, then we will stumble and fall 
under God's judgment for our sins, for our disbelief, for our disobedience. So everybody has a decision to make. A decision faces everybody in the room. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian this morning and you've not decided for Jesus one way or the other. Well, this morning, your decision, uh, there's a decision confronting you. Who do you say Jesus is? And what you decide about him will determine everything about you as well. What happens to you in this life and in the next. Believing in him and what he's done and submitting to him means that we bow the knee to him and we will never be put to shame. But if we refuse and reject him, we will stumble and fall under God's righteous judgment. But Peter has something else to say to us in quoting these three Old Testament texts at us. Something very important. And that's that God has chosen Christ and appointed him as the Messiah and the precious living stone to be the most important stone in what God is doing in the world. God is undertaking a grand building project and Christ is the most important stone in that building project. He calls him the cornerstone. Now, in common ancient Near Eastern building practices, and I think it was common up till not too long ago, it may still be common today, I haven't really built my own house, so I don't know, but uh, cornerstones or foundational stones were the first stone that went down into a building. The cornerstone was something that was laid down by the builder that determined everything about the entire building. So the size of the building, the shape of the building, the courses of bricks that could be built in the building, the height of the building, the, uh, the weight of the building. It was all determined by the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the most important and governing part of the entire building. It set the agenda for the building. It set everything about the building. Everything was supposed to be lined up by the cornerstone. And if you were out of whack with the cornerstone, then the building was going to not be as stable as it could be. And here, Peter of God's purposes in history. He's the Messiah. He's the cornerstone of all that God is doing in the universe and in history. All of God's purposes, get this right, not, this is not to, to exaggerate. According to the Bible, all of God's purposes will be accomplished through the cornerstone and the building that is built upon the cornerstone, which is the church. Not making that up, you can go to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 to read it for yourself and other places. All of God's purposes in the, in the universe and in history are built upon the cornerstone and involve the building that's built upon him, the church, us. God has sovereignly ordained that we are at the center of his purposes and plans in history through Jesus. That is who we are this morning. So in verse 4 he says, as we come to him, we find our identity in him is more than just a ragtag collection of individuals who happen to just meet in the same room at the same time on the same Sunday. 
We are united to Jesus, sharing in his resurrection life. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us, Ephesians 1 verse 20, to such a degree that we become partakers of his divine nature, 2 Peter 1 verse 4, so that we too, Peter tells us, become living stones Joined to the living stone, the cornerstone, built into the house of God. Did you see that in verse 4? As we come to him, and that's not just in our initial coming to him in faith for salvation. That's in our repeated, ongoing, daily coming to him as our Lord and Savior for faith, uh, in faith for grace and hope and trust and strength and help every single day, hour by hour, over and over again. As we come to him... We're being built together on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ into the spiritual house of God. That's who we are. Christians are living stones joined to the living stone, now part of God's great building project. And this building project that he is building is going to display the mercy and the grace and the wisdom and the power and the glory of God to the entire universe one day. That's what we're a part of. I mean, it seems a little bit crazy, doesn't it? Okay? So we, when we come to Jesus every day in faith and trust and in communion with him as our Lord and Savior, it's not that we're just merely forgiven and free and we are sent on our way as individual solitary Christians to make our way to heaven. No, he calls us together and he shapes us and he fits us and he chips bits off the block and he forms us and he takes us and he with divine intentionality and and care, he builds us together on the foundation of Christ to be a place, a house where God happily dwells and displays his glory to the entire watching world. That's what we're doing here. Now, imagine that encouragement to Peter's first readers. So the first readers, maligned and mocked and marginalized, they were a bunch of Christians who were being treated badly by the surrounding culture. They were thousands of miles away from Jerusalem and the temple, which, would, which would, they would, might have thought was the, the center of this new religion because it started in Jerusalem. And they were on the edges of the known world. And so perhaps they were thinking, are, are we second-rate Christians? We've never been to Jerusalem. We've never met the Apostle Peter himself. Maybe. We haven't, you know, we haven't got a history. We're, we're Gentiles by birth. We're not Jews. We don't have this kind of history. Perhaps we're second-rate Christians. And Peter writes and he says, no, you're not. No, you're not. You may never have been to Jerusalem. You may never have met Paul and, the, and Matthew and the other apostles. You may never have met me. You might feel like outsiders. You might feel like outliers. But actually as a church, you're right at the center of what God is doing in the world. So be encouraged. What God is doing in the universe and in history to make his glory known involves the church. Our church. This church this morning. With all of its faults and its failings. With all of its smallness and its struggles, we are more than a random collection of individuals. We're being built together by a master builder and an architect who will one day pull away the veil and reveal his glory in all of its fullness through us. Just let that 
sink in for a minute because that is massive. Okay? We are the poster child. Do you know what I mean by that? That, you know, the face of God in the world to declare his glory to everybody and everything. It's massive. And it has massive implications for us. That means that when we gather this morning and every morning on a Sunday, and when we gather in our small groups during the week, and when we gather on Friday nights as the teens and Sunday nights as the youth, and in other times when we gather together corporately, there's more going on than you can see with your eyes. There's more going on than you can see with your eyes, than you can experience with your smell and taste buds and ears. We're part of something much larger and much more glorious than we can perceive. That's the reality of what it means to be the church. When God's people come together, when we're gathered for worship, when we gather around his word, when we gather to pray, when we gather for fellowship, there is a particular and a unique power and presence and glory that accompanies our gathering that doesn't happen when you're just sat on your own in your, on your, own in your room. God delights to manifest himself among his people in a unique way when his people are gathered together, much more so than when we are apart. That means, right? That means that right now, in this room, God is here. Do you know that? God is here right now. The one who spoke and made all of creation come into being is, right, is here right now with us. The one who raised Jesus from the dead is here right now with us. The one who is going to dwell with us for all eternity is here right now with us. We don't need to conjure up his presence we don't need to beg him or twist his arm to come. We don't need shrines or altars or rituals or relics or incantations. When we come to church, God comes to church. In fact, he's already here. He was early. And he didn't have to make a New Year's resolution for it either. He's here with us right now. That means there's no place like the church. No other gathering quite like the people of God. And because God is here, I want to be here too. Don't you? If this is the place where God uniquely meets with his people, we should not want to miss it. it and if we grasp what Peter says, it shouldn't just be that we, should, we don't want to miss it, but we should be filled with excitement and enthusiasm and anticipation and expectation and wonder. Wow, we're going to the place to meet with God. And the church should be a place bristling with life and vitality and joy because we come and we go, God is here. Wonder what he's going to do today. Now, say these questions to myself before I ask them to you. Is that how we think about the church on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning? Is our first thought... I can't wait to go to church. 
Or is it, I can't believe I'm on setup again. And by the laugh, I think we know what our first thought is on a Sunday morning. Is our first thought delight or dread? Is this how we talk to our kids about church? Do they see our eagerness and our expectation as we prepare and as we drive in and as we arrive? Do they see it on our faces? Do they see after we leave where we, our faces shine with a kind of a glory because we've been amongst God's people and met with God? Now, that does, that's not the case for me every week. So that's, my, that's what I want, though, for 2019. I want the church to be a renewed priority and my excitement and my enthusiasm, my anticipation and my wonder that meeting with God. Wow. I'm going to be on time. I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to be ready. Let me encourage you to make that your priority too. For a couple of reasons. Make church your priority because God is here. and You don't want to miss him. A few months ago we had Rick Gamash preach this passage and he used this illustration. He said, you know, if you miss the gathering of God's people, like Thomas did, the Apostle Thomas at the, the end of uh, John chapter 20, he missed the risen Jesus. He missed one meeting. Jesus showed up and he was like, oh, I missed Jesus. That could happen to you if you don't come. That's a guilt trip. You know, we all miss for various reasons. We're sick. We go on holiday. We have to visit family, etc. But our priorities and our enthusiasm and our excitement should be, I want to be with God's people. I don't want to miss the risen Jesus. Second reason why you should be here is because if you're not, the house is incomplete. If it's true that we're being fitted together as living stones and you're missing, there's a hole in the wall. We'll miss you. We miss the gifts that you bring and the joy that it is to, miss, to meet with God's people. So it's not just about, well, I don't want to go because I don't get anything from it. No, we need you here because we need stuff from you. Without you, we're not complete. There's a hole in the wall. So let us guard ourselves from the modern millennial minimalist mindset. There you go, there's a lot of M's. The modern millennial minimalist mindset that is sweeping the church that says, well, you know, I'll just turn up if I like and I'll just come and go as I please and it won't matter. And No, it does matter. It matters to God. We shouldn't take our existence as the church as brothers and sisters for granted or treat it casually. We shouldn't dishonor the church with a kind of a low view or careless words or disinterested attitudes. Let me put it like this. If you don't like my wife, you can't be my friend. All right? That goes for me. If you don't like Claire, we ain't going to be friends. Sorry. All right? Now, she's eminently likable. It's probably the other way around. She'll say, if you don't like my husband, we can still be friends because we're, hey, we're good. Right? That's me. You know? But if you don't like my wife, you can't be my friend. That's what Jesus says. If you're disinterested, careless about the church, dishonor the church, that's his bride. We're his bride. Can you imagine turning up to Ash and Emily's wedding and you know, after the, the ceremony saying to Ash, oh, I love you, Ash. You're a great guy. And then punching Emily in the face. <laughs> Can you imagine that? But that's what happens when we say we take Jesus seriously, but we don't treat the church seriously. Let the church be our priority. You can get better sermons online. I've heard them. 
You can listen to better worship music on iTunes. I've heard it. All right? And the temptation can be to think that we can do church, we can do Christianity without church. Well, that is not true. That is not right. Because listening to a sermon or listening to worship music is not just about enjoying the product, it's about participation. It's about participation. The church is the place where we learn to love God and others, where we're strengthened, where we're transformed by truth from God's word, where we're taught how to pray, how to worship, how to serve, where we're certain, where we become certain that what we're investing our time and our money in is, is for eternity. The church is the place where we grow in our role as friends and sons and daughters and husbands and wives and fathers and mothers. The church is the single best place on the planet. In fact, it's God's specially designed place for us to grow and to change for the glory of God. As we become genuinely involved in the work of the church, we are serving God and making him known in the community and we are putting ourselves in the best possible place for God to do his work in us and for him to be glorified. So it's not solitary Christians making our isolated journey to heaven. It's not even that we're just a random collection of Christians on the same bus making a journey to heaven, we are living stones, placed and fitted and shaped and joined together, growing as people are added and being beautified as God polishes us and chips away at the stuff that doesn't fit. And he beautifies us and he makes us glorious and then he dwells with us. That's a high calling. That's who we are. Now, secondly, why we are. Well, that's in verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're called to be a priesthood and a priesthood that offers sacrifices. Now, this is teeming with Old Testament language because in, in the Old Testament, the priesthood were, were men descended from the tribe of Levi who were set aside for the service of God in the temple. And these men had special privileges and special access to God that regular people couldn't have. And they were appointed to represent God to man and they were, represented, they were appointed to represent man to God. So they were mediators. They stood in the place between God and man. But Peter says, we're all priests now. It's not just some specially selected bunch of men from the tribe of Levi. Every Christian is part of the priesthood of all believers. And you don't have to be super religious to be part of it. If you put your faith in Jesus, you become a priest to him. And he tells us in verse 5 that we are a holy priesthood, that God has set us apart. And in verse 9, he tells us we are a royal priesthood. That means we belong to the king for service to the king. And as Peter stacks up this image of temple or spiritual house and priesthood and sacrifices, what he's trying to get at is this. As the people of God, we're not to be passive, but we're called to be active participants in the work and service of God because that's what priests did. They served God. They were active. They couldn't sit down because there was always stuff to do. And we are not to be passive and just sit down and treat church as a spectator sport. We're to be actively involved in the service of God. So Jesus died to bring us to God and his, his once for all sacrifice has made us priests. 
with a staggering responsibility that comes to serve God. And priests offer spiritual sacrifices, Peter tells us in verse 5. So let's just think about what we're called to do as the priesthood who serves in the house of God. Well, first thing to say is this. We're not required to offer physical animal sacrifices. You do not need to come next week with lamb, okay, or bulls or goats. No sacrifices, blood sacrifices are needed There is to be no sacrifice for sins either because Jesus was the great high priest and the ultimate sacrificial lamb and he, in his death and resurrection, made a once for all perfectly complete and perfectly sufficient sacrifice which means that there is no sacrifice needed for atonement with God. It's taken care of. We live in the good of that. But we're still to offer sacrifices. So what are they? Well, Woven throughout the New Testament is the language of sacrifice. And I just wanted to look at four different places quickly with you to see the kind of sacrifices that we're called to offer. So if you want to turn to Romans chapter, one, uh, Romans chapter 12, go back a few pages in your Bible. Romans chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, I can read it for us. This is what Paul says. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies... As living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we're to use our bodies to offer them as sacrifices, which is our spiritual worship. What that means is that everything you do with your body, eat, sleep, program computers, web design, hammer nails, play football, teach the kids, change nappies, make meals, read books. Everything that you do, it's, a, it's potentially an offering of worship to the Lord. It's a sacrifice. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. That is part of our spiritual sacrifices that we're called to offer God. Our lives, our very lives. So ask yourself a question. Does your life look like a sacrifice of worship to God? And if not, where will you change in 2019? Second way that sacrifice is used, Philippians chapter 4, verse 18 Here's what Paul says again. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So one of the ways in which we offer sacrifices to God is through our giving. And our financial support of gospel ministry, especially through our giving to the local church. You know, often when we talk to people about giving, they say, I don't, I can't afford to give. Like somehow giving is a question of affordability. Paul makes it clear here and in other places that giving and financial support of gospel ministry is not primarily about affordability. It's about worship. Who's on the throne of your heart? You, your iPad, your house, your boat, your car, whatever it might be, those things that you want, 
or Jesus. And when we give, we are making spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Christ. So ask yourself a question. Does your giving look like worship? And if it doesn't, where will you change in 2019? Perhaps it's to reassess and you had a pay rise and you haven't given that extra bit and you think, used it for lifestyle, haven't really given. Maybe it's time to do that, to reassess your budget. Maybe you've never given at all and this is the first time you can. Maybe God is calling you to do that. Where does our, does our giving look like worship? Number three, Hebrews 13. So you can go just back a few pages. Hebrews 13, in verse 15, the writer to the Hebrews says this, Through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So one of the sacrifices that we offer as the priesthood of of believers is to praise God with our lips. To come in Sunday after Sunday, day after day, ready to worship him, ready with thankfulness and gratitude in our hearts to God for all that he's done for us. That's an act of sacrificial worship. So, stand and sing loudly and praise God with the band. And if you don't, ask yourself a question. Why does my worship not look like worship? Is it fear of man? Is it history? Is it background? Is it you just don't know what to do? Is it heart issues? And say, well, where can I change in 2019? And then finally, Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have with others for such sacrifices are pleasing to God so one of the ways in which we serve God as his priests is we care for one another we love one another we make sure that what we have if someone is in need we're prepared to give it there's a generosity of spirit there's a there's good deeds towards others now all of these four they're not exhaustive they just are Descriptive of a broadness of the spiritual sacrifices that we're to offer. They include life and lips, word and deed, sacred and spiritual, if you like. And what he's getting at is this. Every moment of your life should be done for Jesus, relying on Jesus, delighting in Jesus, so that you're being made more like Jesus. It's a call to lift our eyes away from ourselves and our small worldly ambitions and fix our eyes on a God-centered vision of all things something that's bigger than our careers, something that's bigger than our families, something that's bigger than our hobbies. We're living stones built together into God's dwelling place to declare and to demonstrate to the world around us the glory of the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And if we believe his words to be true, it should make a huge difference in how we think and how we relate to this church in 2019. We must be here for her. We must toil for her. We must pray for her. We must invest in her. We must serve her for the sake of Jesus. And while it can seem small and insignificant and unimpressive and ordinary, with the same preacher or preachers preaching the same basic message every week to the same bunch of people, God is here in the smallness. And in the insignificance, and he is using it for his greater glory. So let's begin 2019 with renewed God-sized vision of the church and what we are a part of 
the joy of being born to, again to a living hope and being born into his people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning and we pray you'd seal your word in our hearts that we would know who we are and why we are and it would change the way that we are in 2019. For our good and your glory we pray. Amen.